Ray is a general-purpose distributed computing framework. Ray is used for reinforcement learning and other compute-intensive tasks. It was developed at the Berkeley RISE Lab, a research and development lab with an emphasis on practical applications. Jan Stoika is a professor at Berkeley, and he joins the show to talk about the present and future of the Ray framework. Jan, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about the Ray ecosystem today, and I think it's worth starting off by just giving people an overview for what Ray is or a reminder. Yeah, so the way we are looking at Ray is that universal framework for distributed computing. What this means that Ray is general enough, so you can build, in principle, any distributed application on top of it. And the reason for its generality is that it takes these two constructs you have in almost any programming language, particularly in any imperative programming language, functions and classes or objects, and allows a programmer to transparently run them remotely and asynchronously. And the functions gives you the ability to support stateless operations like side effect free. It's more think about more like about RPC, like transparent uh, remote procedure calls. And an object, when you instantiate an object from a class, in Ray, you create basically an actor, a stateful operator. And you can use to implement everything from model serving, training, microservices. So when you put this together, you are going to end up with a very powerful framework and a very general one. Great. And tell me about some of the applications that have been built on top of Ray or some of the frameworks that are built on top of Ray. Yeah. So, you know, this is something we are extremely excited about. And that is about the libraries and applications which are being built on top. As you know, and from our previous conversation, we have started almost from day one, also building a set of libraries on top of Ray. Ray, it's again, it's very flexible, very general, but its API is quite low level. And even with higher level languages like Python and Java, as you know, a huge part of their success is a strength of their ecosystem because you have a library for almost everything you want to do. So instead of writing hundreds of lines of code, you just make an API call and everything is great. So, you know, we started with a focus on a few machine learning libraries. We started with reinforcement learning, RLib. Then we had Tune, high-parameter tuning. And more recently, we added RayGD, which is a simple library for doing some distributed training. And we have also Racer for serving, for model serving uh, library. So we have this kind of libraries and, you know, RLib it's extremely popular, arguably is the most popular scalable reinforcement learning library. Tune is growing very fast in popularity, the high parameter search library. And Racer, we also have a few, you know, uh, companies already deploying it in production. But what we are really, really excited about, it's about the third party ecosystem of libraries, you know. And in the past several months, we've seen a lot of traction we have started to have a lot of integration with some of the most popular libraries out there. And in some cases, they use Ray in order to scale, you know, the creator of these libraries, they use Ray to scale these libraries to go from a single node to multiple nodes to a cluster. And here are a few examples. 
on the natural language processing. We are going, having ongoing efforts with hugging faces and spacey, which are, you know, arguably the most popular natural language processing libraries. So they are running on, on the array, and now you can run them on a cluster. Other examples, we have integration with other high-parameter search libraries like Hyperopt, Optune. Then another very exciting thing just happening this, you know, as we speak, integration with Horobot. And with Horobot, you can run Horobot in Ray. And now, in addition to, obviously, a great library to do distributed training, you have access to many of the features of Ray. Like, you know, the ability to launch clusters and manage the cluster much easier. We have auto-scaling, right? So you can use that right away. And then you can integrate with other libraries in the ecosystem. You can do high-parameter search. You can use Tune, for instance. So you can use Serve for doing model serving. So I think that's very exciting. Another, you know... The things which is, is happening, which is very surprising, and it's, again, all of these third-party efforts come from, uh, you know, the creators of this library. So it's uh, just, you know, growing the community. We have Dusk, as you know, it's a popular general Python frameworks for distributed applications. It's, again, this comes from the community. There is an integration with Ray, so you can now run Dusk on top of Ray and, you know, get better scalability and hopefully also performance. And the other aspect, which also is very exciting, we see more and more traction from a platform, machine learning platforms, which using Ray, like, of course, it was, you know that from last time we met, it was SageMaker, it's using Ray RLE for reinforcement learning. Now in preview also RLE for Azure ML, Analytics Zoo is a software, you know, stack, data analytics and machine learning from Intel is now integrating Ray and many more. There's a ton of examples of how Ray can be used. I do want to take the conversation in a slightly different direction and talk about what it might not be used for. We've had a few shows on this workflow scheduler that came out of Uber, basically a scheduler for long-lived workflows. So like, for example, if I'm going to take a Uber ride somewhere, that might be a long-lived application with lots of distributed tasks to be done within that workflow. As I'm driving around in my Uber car, it takes an hour long. It's a distributed systems problem. And I wonder if that is something that you could conceive of being built on top of Ray, or is Ray more for like batch data science type of things? Yeah, no, actually, with RayServe, and we are going to have, you know, some exciting announcement that they are coming, Ray Summit, which is just at the end of the month, starting on September 30th. So actually, you know, we can run on top of Ray, and we are looking great use case going forward we can run production workloads, interactive workloads. If you think about, and this is like another one of the big users of Frey, uh, Ant Group, uh, you know, it's uh, unfinancial, it's Alibaba Arm, which was basically Alipay, the former Alipay. 
This is one of the biggest financial services. They deploy Ray massively. And the kind of thing they are deploying it, it's not necessary for data science. It's, it's for, you know, like application, like recommendation, right? It's like basically when you are going to log in in their application, you get some recommendation about, you know, what services to you maybe what products they're affiliates to buy and things like that. And that's basically, it's an online learning application. It's basically, you know, you get, you know, the request from the user and, you know, obviously you provide the recommendations, but then you update with a high frequency. Every few minutes you update the model to take into account new informations from the users, what they like and what they didn't like. So you merge that with the you know, a user graph. And from the new data and from that, you are going to continuously improve the recommendations. They are using it also fraud detection and like one particular example is money laundry. You want, before you approve a transaction, ideally, you want to figure out whether that transaction is part of the money laundry activity. And each transaction, if you think about it's an edge on the transaction graph, right? On a huge transaction graph, right? You add another edge between the two entities who are making the transaction. And money laundry typically you detect it by detecting cycles in this transaction graph. And you know, doing that in real time is pretty challenging because you add a new edge and you need to figure out that's part of kind of a cycle. And there is also some machine learning involved there because you don't have absolutely every transaction in the world. So that's another example. So it's like you have a streaming plus graph processing together and you want to do that pretty much in real time. So they use uh, Ray for that as well. So Ray, it's, like I mentioned, is very general and this is the exciting part of it. And as I mentioned, Ray Serve, which is basically doing model serving, but it's not doing model serving, you can also add business logic. This is one of the things which is exciting about Rayserve because it used to be, if you look, in fact, at most of these backends, right, best service backends, it's a huge serving application, right, because you get a request and you provide a reply, an answer, right? And a request can be a text query, right? And you return back a bunch of documents or it can be an image like in Pinterest and you return back some of the similar images or something like that. So everything like Uber, right? You Like you mentioned, right? You ask for an Uber you, and you are going to get back a reply who, you know, how long you, are, you may need to wait and things like that. And these backends, actually they are obviously very, very complex. But the point here is that they are more and more marrying classic web serving and so forth. It's like microservice architectures. It's logic about, you know, what do you need to do and how do you need to do and so forth. And when a request comes, how do you route that request in this kind of microservice deployments? And then with machine learning models, right? Because you are incorporating more and more machine learning into the decision framework, into this, you know, analyzing a request and returning the possible answers. Rayserve with Ray are in a unique position to be a platform which can unify, bring together the you know this classic you know web services with 
model serving. So this was a long answer to your question, but you know the short answer is that actually you know for we do believe that Ray is very well positioned for this kind of workloads, you know, and long living workloads. And now, of course, you ask about your original question also was. Well, what is Ray not good at, right? It seems, you know, hey, you must be something which is not good at. And I think that, you know, like, for instance, you have job orchestration frameworks like or pipeline orchestration like Airflow and Uzi and things like that. You still need that because that's a level of taking, you know, you have multiple jobs and you want to orchestrate them. You have a more complex pipeline. You can implement the jobs in Ray and so forth, but you still need that higher level job orchestration framework. Very interesting notes. So what other applications do you anticipate being built on top of Ray that have not been built yet? So I think that one exciting thing is about, in general, about a platform which is general is that you can run on that platform workloads. It was hard to run before, because before you may need different systems to run the same workload. So this putting them together. And I think that, you know, we have this like, you know, there are analogies like iPhone, right? Before the iPhone and smartphones, you have different use cases or different capabilities which are embedded in different devices like gps for getting directions for uh, maps right and getting direction driving directions you can have uh, remember you know like uh, cameras digital cameras or you can have flip it was this device for recording or the you know mp3 players and things like that and then something like iphone like bring all of this together so now you can it's an application on your device. And now you can build new application which can use, you know, like virtual reality. You can put that in, into, you know, put together in, in a game and you can move the virtual world. And so things like that, which you are aware about the location because you also have a GPS. I think that's one direction which is exciting in the bigger picture. So the examples I have in mind and which I believe, you know, I talk a little bit about them early, was that embedding now you can have one system to run, you know, almost your entire backend, right? And business logic plus machine learning, you can have, Say, you know, you can, many companies don't run only one model, run a huge number of models in their backends. And then they need a business logic to figure out which models are they going to use, how they are going to route the request between these models. So for instance, if you look at the image and you may want to identify, look at the license place, like when we have, you know, when you, you can have a model which look at your image and then if the image has a car, you identify a car, only then you can look after, you know, to identify something about that car, like to license plate, to read the license plate, right? If it's not a car, you don't need to do that. So that's an example, a very simple example of uh, business logic. There are other examples of business logic in which are very useful, like, for instance, 
you know, some industries, you need to provide some, there are some regulations in terms of the decision you are going to make. And you want to verify before you give an answer back that these regulations are met. So that's, you know, that's another example because it's, you know, like, like for instance, uh, say one example, it's about you make a decision on uh, something like a mortgage, right? You apply for a mortgage and uh, I'm a bank and I'm going to decide on that mortgage. And it turns out that if I deny you, you can ask me why I denied you. I need to explain you. And the reason for that, I need to make sure to, to tell you and to assure you that I didn't deny you because using some, say, racial profiling or things like that, right, which are illegal. So then if I use a machine learning model, a deep learning model, it's pretty hard to explain what how the decision has been made. So that's why. But on the other hand, if before I give you the answer, I kind of try to double check the answer to make sure that it's not, you know, it's in, so to speak, it cannot be interpreted like being based on the race or something like that, which somehow the model may have picked it up. Then that's one way to use a machine, the deep learning model, which I cannot explain in an application which requires me by regulation to met some rules and even be able to explain that it was, I didn't use in my decision some of the inputs which are not against regulations, right? So I think that's one one of the exciting things, right? So marrying classic serving application with deep learning application, building it on a one end-to-end platform. The other thing is that an example of this is, like I mentioned, like money laundry, the, the examples I gave to you earlier. And in that example, it's again, I do need to graph processing and streaming. This is basically what you need to do. Right? It's hard to do it, right? Because you have streaming application, you have graph application, you know, large-scale graph application. But if you put them together, it's hard because they are not, you know, you need to manage these two different systems. You need to move the data between them. And for instance, many of the graph engines, graph processing engines, are not, so to speak, interactive, right? They don't work in a streaming regime, right? In, in which you, you know, every every new, you know, you get a new request that you change the graph, then you need to evaluate something on the graph and you need to give an answer in basically real time. So I think these are the, some of the things I think they are very exciting. Like for instance, the other example, like I mentioned, and this again, talk about the richness once you have one ecosystem you can put together. Like horrible today, you do training, then you need something else for serving, right? Maybe seldom or something like that. You need something else for higher parameter tuning, like hyperop or something like that. So it's again, it's like, you can do it today, but the barrier is a little bit high because, again, there are different systems. You need to put them together. But with, for instance, Horovod running on top of Ray, in the same system, now you have access to just another library you can you, you use to do high-parameter tuning. It can be another library just to use to do serving. 
And this tremendously lowers the barrier of, I believe, of developing new exciting applications. It's like in Python, right? It's in Python, I can use Pandas to do data processing and you know, get some insights. Then I get NumPy to do numerical computation. I can use, very easily use them in the same application. So that's how we hope that at the end of the day will be as easy to mix this kind of different workloads and to build this end-to-end application in Ray as it is today to mix and match different libraries in traditional languages like Python and Java. And I think one thing that underlies a lot of this is just that Machine learning is way too hard to use today, and and that's why there's kind of a narrow set of use cases for machine learning relative to where machine learning could be used. Like, we're talking over Zoom right now, and if machine learning was easier to use, I wouldn't even have to click the end meeting button. Like, there would be enough inputs that Zoom would just know when the meeting is over, and it would just end the meeting instantaneously. But today, that's just not realistic to implement that because it's it's too hard to use. But I can imagine if the abstractions were right, it would be very possible. Yes, yes, absolutely. These are exactly, you know, that's a terrific idea. And uh, look, you know, let, let me take a step back here. So why we've been doing Ray in the first place and we started AnyScale, it's because... You know, things are hard. In particular, what is hard is building distributed application. All these applications that we are talking about, they are kind of distributed. They run on a backend, and they need to scale more and more, and so forth. So that's a premise. The premise is that more and more of these applications are going to be distributed. And building distributed application is very And one of the reasons building this application is hard is because there are many pieces you need to put in place. You need to assemble them. And many systems you have, you have to use. And when you have to use multiple systems, it's hard on many levels. It's hard to write the application because you need to, to write across different systems. While people, we are ideally, we want to write, you know, it's like almost like ideally it's a monolithic application. And I say monolithic application is not all the code is on one file. You have in one repository, right? Like think about in one repository. But you can write it, you can test it. It's like on your, you know, like would you do an application on your laptop? You can develop and you run it on application on your laptop. So you want this kind of experience that what people want. But then it's again, when you have different systems in place, it's very hard to achieve that. And then you need to deploy it and you need to run it in production. You need to manage it. It's again, when you have different systems, different moving parts, it's, it's incredibly difficult. So that's what we hope to do is right, to simplify that process because it's again, many of these pieces are going to be like libraries on top of the same platform on, on, on Ray. So I think that's where we believe that is going to simplify it. And again, right now we are really focusing and targeting developers, people who build this application, people who build these libraries. But I do hope that we are going because you simplify you know, and you make it much easier for developers to build this kind of distributed large-scale applications, make it much easier to 
put together in the same applications, do machine learning, do deep learning, and, you know, like I mentioned, business logic, put this together. I think that we do hope to see a tremendous, you know, and very exciting new applications. And another thing I wanted to say about this distributed application, one of the things which leads to this, to our focus on distributed applications is that, and I think we discussed last time, is the fact that the demands of the application we are talking about, which do machine learning, which may do data processing, are increasing much faster than capabilities of a single node, of a single processor, even if you are talking about specialized processor like GPUs and TPUs, right? I was looking over this data and of course you have the OpenAI plot, you know, this uh, OpenAI 2019, they have this famous plot which shows that the computation requirements to train the state of the art models, machine learning models, are doubling every 3.5 months, which is equivalent, which growing 35 times every 18 months, right? And I was looking also recently, if you look at the size of the models, the state-of-the-art models, in, for the past four years, increased like 20 times every 18 months, right? And now with GPT, if you look for the past two years, with the GPT-1, where GPT-2, and now GPT-3, they increase like 200 times, right? It's like every 18 months. So these things are huge, right? These increases are huge. For comparison, Moore's law used to increase what? It's two times improved performance every 18 months. So two times, two times when you compare two times with like 35 times and or, you know, 20 times or things like that. It's like order of magnitude difference, right? And the, we are talking about Moore's law and we also know that Moore's law, you know, has ended. So this is a thing, right? It's like you have this kind of huge disparity between the demands of these applications and the capabilities of a single node. And then you have also a lot of applications are fundamentally distributed in nature, like backends, like we are talking about. You know, our premise is that this, because of these trends, the distributed applications are going to be the norm, no longer the exception, right? So almost you know, in five years from now or 10 years from now, almost everyone will build distributed application from the beginning to start with, right? It's it's not going to be an afterthought. And if that will happen, obviously for that to happen, we need to clearly lower the barrier of building these applications, right? Because today it's super hard to do it, right? How many people build distributed applications, right? Compared with the total number of developers right? You have out there a minority, very small number, right? So I think that's what we are so excited about Ray and why we build Ray, because we do believe that it will make a big step forward in building this distributed application, general distributed applications, much easier. So you mentioned a lot of different aspects there. One element was the the hardware trends, and we are speaking in anticipation of Ray Summit, which you're going to be speaking at. It's a virtual conference about Ray. I encourage people to check it out if they have a chance. And somebody who's speaking is Dave Patterson. He's been very interested in computer architecture for a long time. So when you talk to Dave Patterson about 
these trends in hardware, what kind of insights has that brought up and how has that helped to lead to how you're constructing Ray? Obviously, Dave has been, it's a very insightful person and, you know, he's steering our talk. It's about specialized hardware. We are living in, you know, in the golden age of specialized hardware, right? Look now, you know, NVIDIA, very valuable company, right? Uh, right, these days. It's, and uh, Google built the CPUs. Almost every other cloud provider built specialized hardware. And all of this, again, let's go back to what is the original problem. So the original problem is that the requirements of this application, in particular machine learning application, are growing much faster than the hardware capabilities, right? So you need to solve this problem, right? And again, the numbers I talk about, 35 times, you know, growing opens, it's compounding, right? Because exponential curve, right? So in order to bridge this gap, the performance gap, what you can do? One answer, great answer, specialized hardware. With specialized hardware, you trade generality for performance, right? If I do a single operation, I can make a very fast hardware for it. If I need to do 1,000 different type of operations, it's much harder because I need to do all these trade-offs. So in some sense, this is what specialized hardware is doing. And don't get me wrong, specialized hardware and GPUs and TPUs are much, much faster than a single core, right? Processors, right? They are on a you know different level, right? They are, can be order of magnitude faster than one core, right? Now, the point is that this specialized hardware, they are still, they cannot, once you have the architecture and you can you know slightly improve the architecture, you still the performance is going to increase with a more slow. Right, because you cannot cram more transistors, right? You get the main advantage because it is this trade-off, and you, you have the architecture which is specialized for you for a particular workload. And you are going to see more and more on this. But it's not going to be enough, right? Another example about what it's why it's you know it's not going to be enough for the foreseeable future. Everyone talks about processing, but the memory is a big deal, and it's a memory bandwidth. And then it's a memory capacity. I'm going to focus only memory capacity. If you look about, I mentioned earlier, that the number of parameters, the size of the networks, the deep learning networks, are increasing faster than ever. I think like around 20 times every over every 18 months over the past four years. And for the last two years was insane because you know GPT two, GPT three is what 170 billion parameters, right? So if you look about this, and if you look now a GPU memory, right? Because if a GPU memory increased, now you have 32 gigabytes you have on V100, I think it's 40 gigabytes on uh, A100, the latest uh, NVIDIA GPU. I think TPUs are the same order of magnitude in terms of the RAM of the memory on the GPU. This also, if you look over years, it doesn't increase much. I think it increased. I looked, I think for the past eight years, I look at the NVIDIA GPUs, it was like 1.5x every 18 months, right? Now we're, now we're close about how much the size of the deep learning models has increased over the same time period. So here you are, right? Memory, you cannot do much about memory to specialize it, right? Specialization doesn't help as much because with memory, for every bit of information, 
you are going to still need a few transistors to store that bit, right? And that's why right now, when you train this huge model, they train it on many, many GPUs, hundreds of thousands. Some of them say it's prohibitive for a few of the, com- but a few companies to train these models. And that's why now we are talking about refinements. You train it, so you train it, you spend all this money to train it, and I don't know, hundreds of thousand dollars, maybe even millions of dollars soon. And then you have the train network, and now you're fighting for your data set, right? We just improve it, incrementally improve it. But it's what I'm saying. So now, yes, specialized hardware, it's amazing. And you are going to, we are going to continue to improve it to bridge a gap, but it's not enough. Then what, it, what if you have to do, it's also to go distributed using multiple chips, right? This is what every company is doing, right? And that will give you another two, even three order of magnitude improvement in the scale, right? Because you can use 100, 1,000 chips or things like that. It gives you, it's, it's, it's a good improvement. Of course, there will be also a lot of efforts to make, and as you know, to reduce the requirements of some of these huge networks. Discretization, you know, is like quantization, right? It's like you want to use, instead of 64 bits floating point, maybe you can get away with eight bits, right? And there are a lot of efforts to, you know, compress these networks once you learn that this one you serve them. So yeah, there is a lot of research on that side. But just to summarize, let's make no mistakes. The demands today are going through the roof. And they are much, much bigger than what one chip can provide you and one machine can provide you, right? And the gap is just increasing, right? Because it's exponential curve. So then that's a problem. How do you solve the problem? There is no one solution. Specialized hardware, going distributed, distributed, distributing the computation. And obviously, algorithmic improvements are all part of the solution to bridge this performance gap. Are there any benefits to be gained on the cloud computing side of things? Like, because, you know, we're executing a lot of these workloads on the cloud. Does the cloud offer the right primitives that we need to run these kinds of applications? Yes. So it's a great question. Let's step back because I, I just want to make sure that I provide all the context. So let's say you believe me that we need to write distributed applications and more and more applications will become distributed, right? So clearly, in order to have that, you need to have the resources and you need to be able to make it much easier because like we discussed, writing distributed applications today is incredible, incredible hard. And if most of the applications are going to become distributed, you need to make possible for everyone to do it. And obviously, one of the questions here is about, you know, how do I get access to lots of resources, distributed resources, how I'm going to manage them, how I'm going to start a cluster and things like that, right? Now, cloud, it makes it easier, makes it easier for me to get access to these distributed resources, right? It's terrific. But when it comes to, obviously, running distributed application, managing them is hard. Right, it's still hard. Now, what is the answer? One of the answers today to make that easy, right? To make using a large number of CPUs very easy for the developers. And I say it's for the developers, are these serverless 
lambdas and cloud functions and things like that, which allows you to run many functions in parallel, thousands or whatever, or even more, without, by abstracting away the hardware, you don't need to set up a cluster, right? You don't need to set up, you know, to allocate 100 instances and run on them. However, these serverless offerings right now, they do have a lot of limitations. They are very good for things like to trigger the computation on some new data comes in and to process it and then you are done, right? You, you, you just pay only for how much you process it. You don't need to provision anything to process, uh, to process that piece of data we just landed on your storage. So that's great. However, you can only have functions. You cannot, for instance, use, you, it doesn't work well because you cannot support stateful computations like actors or microservices that you cannot do. Yeah, you cannot build, it doesn't work well for deep learning training, right? It doesn't work well for serving. It doesn't work well for all this implementing all this business logic, which you deploy it on, um, typically today on microservices. The functions themselves, you know, this offering themselves right now, Although I don't think there's any fundamental limitation, but still they don't support GPUs. They don't support TPUs. For now, it's only CPUs. It's also a little bit for fragmentation, right? The most popular offerings are coming from cloud providers, but each cloud has its own version. They also have, have limits about for function, for instance, run can run, or cloud function can only run for, I don't know, 15 minutes or something like that, depends on the cloud. So you have all these limitations. So I think that, on one hand, this serverless idea, it's absolutely the right one because it's good for the developers. It lowers the barrier for the developers to write these applications. However, there are many limitations. And I do think that and with Ray and Anyscale, we are looking to remove many of these limitations. But I do think that that's the general direction. And you know, I think a lot of people in industry and research and we hope, you know, we are going to give a big help here, looking to this, basically, you know, you want ideally to be able to use a cluster like your laptop. That's why the holy, holy grail, right? Because if I ask you or I ask developers, what is their favorite environment to develop? It's, I think many of them will tell, tell my laptop, right? Because, you know, it's easy. I want to use my same workflow and so forth. But on the other hand, they also want, you know, to have many, a lot of more resources than you have on the laptop. A lot of different types of resources, GPUs, TPUs. You don't have TPUs on your laptop. They want to be available, right? You cannot deploy a service on your laptop, right? Because when you shut it down and you close it, you know, that service is not available. So I think that what they want is like they want, on one hand, to have the experience of development and running applications like they have on their laptop, but then they want also this laptop to have, you know, unbounded, like infinite resources to be always on. Uh, we are referring to this like they want really an infinite laptop. So that's basically, in some sense, it's again a long answer to your question. But if you are looking about the clouds, so in short, you know, absolutely, the public clouds will do lower the barrier for developers to get 
access to and companies to get access to large number of nodes, which otherwise would be extremely expensive. But we are just at the beginning. There are many more steps to really make this the cloud infrastructure transparent to be like magic, right? You just run it and your applications will just use how many resources it needs, not more because you don't want to spend more and everything is available. And also it's easier to develop the application on your laptop, the same experience. We've talked uh, barely any about reinforcement learning in this episode. And reinforcement learning is is one of the hallmarks of Ray. So the last conversation we had was really centered around reinforcement learning. I wonder if you've had any insights in the last couple months around reinforcement learning and how that pertains to Ray. was the first libraries we develop on top of Ray. And actually, it had a significant impact on the Ray architecture. And it's also, Ray has to thanks to RLib for its generality, because RLib reinforcement learning, like we discussed last time, it's a very general workload, right? Like we discussed, you need to do simulation, large-scale simulations. You need to do training. You need to do serving, right? To serve the model, to take uh, decisions based on the observation of the environment. So you need to do all of those, right? So that's why you need a general substrate. And that was we built Ray for. We do see more and more reinforcement learning applications. We are seeing that in warehouse fulfillment. We are seeing everything, designing engines, designing like sailing boats, right? Designing drugs. We have someone using Ray to for COVID research, right? It's like to design drug vaccines for COVID. And many more. So we see an increasing number of reinforcement learning applications. I think that what we discussed during this podcast is probably just you've seen some of the reflection of the fact that we've seen a lot of more growing and a lot of like people started to know and learn more about Ray. They started to use to doing other things. First, more and more things on the machine learning. And we haven't even discussed about things which are not machine learning related, like, you know, backend testing and things like that. So I think this, you see a reflection in a broadening the scope, broadening the range of applications that Ray is supporting. But I think that one thing to keep in mind, and I always, you know, when I reflect, I'm thinking about that, why this happened. It did happen because reinforcement learning is, is such a general workload much more general than just doing training, much more general than just doing serving. And in order to support enforcement learning, you need to put everything together. So I think that's that's one thing. So the summary, you know, is like reinforcement learning and RLIP, you know, is growing. Now we do believe we have the most complete set of algorithms. We do have parity now. We have parity between TensorFlow and PyTorch. And yeah, a lot of more use cases. So I think that's very exciting. So that's one thing. So it's, it's growing nicely. It's, you know, very exciting. And the other thing is that the one thing which is different from the last year, we are seeing a lot of more interest in other applications from the community 
and in particular, and a lot of this interest, and I believe this will continue, you know, the scope of Frey will continue to broaden with this ecosystem of libraries, because hopefully, you know, more and more people who are using these libraries, they are going also to use on top of Ray. Well, that seems like a great place to close off. Jan, is there anything else you want to add about Ray or the Ray Summit? You know, everyone should take a few hours, attend the Ray Summit. It's a free event and it's our first one. So you are going to hear a lot of excitement announcement and a lot of excitement talks from the community. And it's on September 30th and October 1st. So hope to have you all there tuned in. Thank you.